Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and jump Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. On Countrywide today, a summer of emergencies limits supplies of much-needed produce to food charities. Almond trees planted in the Lower Murray are now the second largest crop in the world, but just how much water does it need to keep them going? Beekeepers unhappy about cheap imported honey, putting a lid on their prices. And we'll hear this French-Australian cheesemaker's secret to an award-winning halloumi. So it's a quick uh, cheese to, uh, to make because um, we don't acidify and we don't mature the cheese, but uh, it's quite intense process and there are plenty of different steps. That's all coming up on Countrywide. Welcome, I'm Elsie Adamo. First today, weather events in Australia are having significant impacts on food supply chains. But it isn't just supermarkets and consumers that rely on our growers and producers, but not-for-profit organisations as well. And it's getting harder for food charities to rely on farmers and growers to have excess produce to donate. Chief Operating Officer for Food Bank Australia, Sarah Pennell, says floods, fires and storms are having a significant impact on their food supply. Well, it's a mixed bag for us at Food Bank and, and in terms of the food relief sector generally. Because in some instances, it is a challenge for us. We aren't you know, able to access food in the way that we normally can. And often, you know, there's a requirement to get food to places that we're not normally reaching out to. And there's the logistics there. So in terms of disasters, there's so much for us to be thinking about. Uh, can we get the, the explicit food and, and stocks that are needed in times of disaster? And can we get them to where they are needed? You know, we're subject to exactly the same access issues that anybody else is with regard to, you know, an area that's been flooded or had bushfires or whatever. So all of that is something we have to think about when it comes to, you know, meeting the demand. But on the flip side, supply chain disruption that is, is caused by disaster events can sometimes provide windfalls for us. So where a supply chain is being disrupted by a flood, for instance, it might mean that stock that was intended to go from the east coast to the west coast or vice versa can't, and therefore it's made available to us. So we've had a number of instances uh, in recent times, the flooding in South Australia that caused disruption to the road and rail link to the west actually meant food was made available to us on the east coast that was never going to make it over to the west in time. So it's a mixed bag and the issue for Food Bank is being flexible and being able to respond to these unexpected events. Often in times of disaster, we need to be very light on our feet when it comes to knowing what to do. And are these type of events something that you've noticed Food Bank is having to deal with more commonly, not even just the extreme weather events, but one-off storms can significantly impact the amount of produce available? Absolutely. It's impacting in one way, shape or form on an ongoing basis now. So we're we're aware that, you know, particular fresh produce may be in short supply or may be in abundant supply because of 
various weather events and we need to be able to cater for that and, and respond appropriately. What we saw during COVID was a relaxation in the quality specifications for fresh produce so that supermarkets could keep product on shelf. That had a negative impact for us because that stock that normally was unacceptable for sale would come to us, but now it was going to sale. So as I say, it's just such a complex issue and how we might be affected in any any given situation is often a surprise. Yeah, so is that a bit of a concern really for Food Bank going into the future? Absolutely. We need to be uh, able to cope with something that's just going to become so variable And that means we have to have the logistics capacity to to respond to any situation, both effectively and quickly. So that's what I mean by saying it's broad ranging and something that when we're looking at a national picture is, is happening all the time somewhere. Chief Operating Officer for Food Bank Australia, Sarah Pennell. Well, continuing on with cost of living, as Australians struggle with rising costs, there are multiple inquiries into whether supermarkets and other businesses are taking advantage of the situation and price gouging. Alan Fells, former chairman of the competition watchdog, the ACCC, said this week that supermarkets and power companies had too much power and governments could do more to prevent price gouging. He says governments are too quick to put prices up and slow to bring them down, which drives up inflation. The cause is weak and ineffective competition in too many sectors of the economy. Two policies are needed. First, the Australian government needs to act on high prices to investigate their nature and causes and, where possible, their remedies. The remedies don't include price controls, but there is much that governments can do. Secondly, greatly strengthen competition policy to remove or weaken market power, which enables the excessive prices to be charged. So the focus is the effects of prices on ordinary people, on workers, on uh, farmers, uh, on poor and disadvantaged people. In my report, I refer to prices going up quicker than they fall. Petrol is a well-known example. Goes up fast, falls slowly. This is sometimes called the rocket and feathers effect. When costs rise, business prices rise fast, like a rocket. When costs fall, business prices fall slowly to the ground like a feather. It's very profitable to delay price falls. A recent example, well known, concerns meat. Now, as inflation starts to fall, I'm concerned there may be a rockets and feathers effect on prices. We want business to play its role, having played a role in getting prices up, We want it to play a role in getting them down, like rockets, not feathers. Former chair of the Australian competition watchdog, the ACCC, Alan Fells, addressing the press club this week. In their defence, supermarkets said they also face higher costs. Coles said it had dealt with 70 requests a week from farmers and suppliers for price increases over the past two years. That's double what it would normally expect. A Senate inquiry is set to hold public hearings with supermarkets in coming weeks. 
Down to the horticultural food bowl of the Lower Murray now, which has for decades been known for its vineyards, citrus and stone fruit orchard. But a global price shift has pushed a new crop to dominate the landscape, with big implications for Australia's most precious commodity, water. Elsie Kennedy has the story. In 2022, as a global glut of wine sent wine grape prices plummeting, grape grower Brett Rosenzweig made the decision to pull out his vineyards in the South Australian Riverland and expand his almond plantings. Mr Rosenzweig's family has grown wine grapes for three generations, but he's now just one of many farmers turning to almonds to secure their futures, which is sparking remarkable growth in an industry that barely existed 20 years ago. So I already had some almond trees, which I planted in 2018 as part of a diversification strategy. And with the downturn in wine grape pricing, I made a snap decision to pull out some Shiraz and plant some more almonds. The growing popularity of almonds has driven the Lower Murray to become the world's second largest almond producing region outside of California and brought in billions of dollars of revenue. Almonds are now Australia's most valuable horticultural export. But the switch to almonds comes with a catch. In addition to being the Lower Murray's largest horticultural crop by area, almonds are also the most water intensive. For Mr Rosenzweig, the investment in almonds was a simple business decision. You know, the first plus uh, I'd have to say for almonds is that they're food. So in theory, that should make it a little bit easier to sell. Almonds are a more valuable crop than wine grapes and demand for the nuts is expected to grow. The pricing is not the best at the moment. It's not at any historical highs, but I think there's some prospects for it to trend upwards over the next couple of years. Optimism in the demand for almonds has been behind big investments by some of Australia's biggest agribusinesses. In 2021, almonds officially overtook wine grapes as the largest crop on Australia's biggest river. There are now more than 45,000 hectares, or 22,000 Melbourne cricket grounds, growing along the Lower Murray, from Barmer in northern Victoria to South Australia's Murraylands. And since 2021, another 1,890 hectares of the trees have been planted. That's more than wine grapes and citrus combined. Almonds use more water than other irrigated crops in the Lower Murray. Independent analysis by Victorian researchers shows that almonds require nearly 7,000 litres of water to produce a single kilogram of shelled nut. By comparison, one kilogram of grapes needs about 740 litres of water to grow. But because almonds are more valuable than wine grapes, growers can afford to spend more on water. Even so, Mr Rosenzweig says accessing enough water to grow his crop is one of his biggest concerns. I don't have all of my water entitlement that I need. So on an annual basis, I need to go in and trade water. So that cost, I guess, is one consideration for the business. And obviously, if we go to dry times, then the trend for temporary water pricing is normally upwards. So then I have to decide, okay, how much am I going to buy? But longer term, the, the risk is just physically being able to get water down the river at the time that all irrigators need it when we've got restrictions like the Barmer choke. For permanent crops like almond trees, limited water availability presents a real challenge. To stay alive, the trees need regular water. If the pumps turn off during drought, the trees die. As temperatures heat up due to climate change, storms are expected to become more intense. But overall, average rainfall is expected to decline, which means water will become more scarce in the Murray-Darling Basin. In particularly dry years, there's a risk there'll be no temporary water available for sale. It's almost certain that the water availability will decline across the southern basin. That's CSIRO Senior Principal Research Scientist David Post. 
He says climate models are anticipating a 20% drop in water availability in the Murray-Darling Basin by 2060. What's happening is that the, the Hadley Cell, which is the, the ridge of high pressure, which extends across Australia, is moving further southwards and intensifying. So we're almost certain that there'll be a reduction in winter rainfall across the southern Murray-Darling Basin and consequently runoff and, and water availability also will decline. In 2020, after two decades of steady increases in permanent plantings in the Murray-Darling Basin, ABARES calculated water requirements were at or even over capacity. They calculated, based on the additional plantings of almonds that were in the pipeline at that time, this is 2020, that there was just barely enough water to maintain horticultural plantings in dry years, and that would be potentially then, of course, making less water available for other agricultural users in particularly in dry years. Australian Almond Board Chief Executive Tim Jackson says investing in almonds makes sense. Well, almonds still stack up as a business case far better than most. The uncertainty around the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and water buybacks has thrown a spanner in that works. But up until that point, you're talking about a product that traditionally has a a premium price and is highly mechanised. So there's no seasonal labour requirements like there are with crops that need to be hand-picked. And you don't waste anything. Everything you harvest, you actually get a return for. So when you add up all those things, it ticks a lot of boxes as far as a business case from a horticultural point of view. Mr Jackson says the almond industry is investing in research to become more water efficient and make use not just of almond nuts, but also almond hulls and shells, which have traditionally been considered as waste, but are now being used as biochar, stock feed and even to generate electricity. Big agribusinesses certainly aren't showing much sign of slowing down their investments. Investment fund GoFarm is in the process of developing about 5,000 hectares of almond orchards at Katungai in Victoria and near Griffith in New South Wales Riverina. And Australian Farming Services, a company which is backed by a US investment fund, is investing $27.5 million in an almond processing plant near the Murray River town of Swan Hill, which will process nuts exclusively for export. Yeah, our our thesis around almonds remains really strong. There's huge demand for it in China and India, which are, you know, two of the biggest populations and growing in terms of their middle class uh, and their their purchasing power continues to rise. So we we remain very positive about, I mean, agriculture in general, but specifically almonds. That's Australian Farming Services Managing Director David Armstrong. Australian Farming Services has 4,500 hectares of almonds under cultivation. And like Mr Rosenzweig, the company doesn't own permanent water licences. So that means each year it goes to the water market to buy, lease and trade water. Mr Armstrong says he is concerned about water availability and he's expecting water prices to rise. But due to the high value of almonds compared to other crops, he expects to be able to afford to continue watering his crop, while growers of other commodities might not be able to. In a bid to rein in new farms competing for an increasingly limited water supply, The Australian Almond Board is calling on New South Wales and South Australia to follow Victoria's lead and introduce a moratorium on issuing water use licences for new developments in the Lower Murray. A spokesperson for the South Australian Government said the state was not considering imposing a moratorium but was continuing to monitor irrigation development. A spokesperson for the New South Wales Government said the state would not be imposing a moratorium on new horticultural developments. And this means that most of the water demand is also from Victorian and South Australian water users, and we believe the focus is best placed on the locations with highest demand, the spokesperson said. Elsie Kennedy finishing that story with additional reporting from Eliza Berlage and Angus McIntosh. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. This is Countrywide. I'm Elsie Adamo. From almonds that rely on bees to pollinate to the honey those bees produce, 
Australia never used to import much honey, but that changed during the millennium drought, jumping from just 300 tonnes in 2001 to 3,000 tonnes the following year. Now we import almost 9,000 tonnes annually, and that number isn't likely to change any time soon. This is angering some beekeepers who say cheap imported honey is pushing prices down to unsustainable levels. Brandon Long reports. It's the cheap imported honey that, that's killing us. That's beekeeper Andrew Ferugia. He owns homegrown honey at Logan in southeast Queensland and sells his honey to smaller retailers, markets and private customers. His price of $7.80 for one kilo tubs hasn't moved for a decade as input costs like jar prices and diesel have risen sharply. I've had to keep my prices the same for that 10-year period just, just so that we can get product on the shelf to compete with the imported cheap honey. The Australian Honey Bee Industry Council says imports did have an effect on Australian prices. That is adding to the supply of honey to the Australian marketplace. An element of that is having an effect on the price that the beekeeper is receiving for their honey. Council Vice Chair John Lockwood says it is making imports a focus, setting up an imported honey subcommittee and meeting for the first time last year. As subcommittee chair, Mr Lockwood says the council is concerned about imported honey coming into Australia and the committee will investigate whether there is a problem with really cheap honeys coming in to ensure a level playing field. He says beekeepers are receiving $4 to $4.50 a kilo for their honey at the moment, which is historically low. Considering inflation, we were receiving prices similar to that yeah, years ago, so it is, it is starting to hurt the beekeepers' back pocket. Most honey imported into Australia comes from China, with the remainder coming from countries like New Zealand, Argentina and Brazil. When it reaches Australian shores, the tonnages and dollars become hard to track. Some is used in food manufacturing, some is blended with Australian honey and sold on supermarket shelves, and some is blended with Australian honey and re-exported. Australia's biggest honey company, Hive and Wellness, is one of the major importers. The majority Australian-owned company, which produces 100% Australian brand Capilano, voluntarily retired its imported brand Alauri from supermarket shelves in 2019 after 17 years on the market amid media allegations. It still sells Alauri to food service companies. What shoppers may not know is it subsequently introduced three cheap imported honeys at the supermarkets, Cloverdale at Woolworths, the Honey Collective at Coles and Chandler's at IGA from $4.40 for a 375 gram jar, which is $11.70 per kilo. Cloverdale contains 90% South American honey and 10% Australian product. The Honey Collective is 20% New Zealand and 80% local. And Chandler's is packed in Australia from at least 10% Australian ingredients. All three bottles are printed with Honey Corporation of Australia, which is what Capilano was called at one stage. That undercuts the price of the cheapest branded honey by $7.50 a kilo. Even cheaper are one kilo tubs of Indian honey, which farmers markets have been selling for $7. Supplier Aegean Import Export did not respond to questions by deadline. Asked if imported honey affected the amount Australian beekeepers were paid, Hive and Wellness CEO Ryan Delmeda says no. No, um, to the contrary. We, we, we do our best to hold the Australian honey price well above the international honey price. 
the international honey price at the moment, whether it be South America or Thailand or Vietnam or other honey producing nations is currently uh, around 35% cheaper than Australia. Mr Dalmeda also says imported honey accounts for 10% of supermarket sales, which is a very small amount. When Hive and Wellness retired Alary from supermarkets, it said it was a first step on the journey to making all honey products 100% Australian. The company has always been transparent that when Australian honey production and sustainable stock levels returned, we would cease the importation of honey, and that is what we are doing, Chief Executive at the time, Dr Ben McKee, said. However, in a 2020 email to beekeepers, Mr Dalmeda said it was restarting the sale of imported honey. As a result of the recent drought and bushfires, Australian honey supply has reduced by 50%, forcing the honey price to a record high of $6.10, Mr Dalmeda wrote. As a result, Hive and Wellness has been requested from a few of our retail customers to supply a more affordable blended Australian and imported honey to meet the demand of the value-conscious segment. As to why imported brands are still being sold during higher production years, the CEO says they were continued due to high inflation. When honey supply did come back on, we've sort of rolled into this period of higher inflation, higher interest rates, and a much more sort of value-orientated market where consumers are very cost-conscious. And given that the international price of honey concurrently has fallen dramatically, we continued with those imported brands and they are playing a role on the supermarket shelf for people who don't really care about origin who don't really care about brand all they care about is price and so these value brands are sort of offering a solution to a, a small proportion of the market if we don't do it someone else is going to fill that void whether it's onshore or offshore someone will offer a cheaper imported product for that proportion of shoppers who want to buy that product. In statements to the ABC, Coles, Woolworths and Metcash said they supported Australian beekeepers but did not answer questions about whether they requested Hive and Wellness to introduce the three imported brands. Brandon Long reporting. Up to the top end now, where the Northern Territory's largest banana farm is looking to expand. The owners are aiming to be able to produce 100% of the top end's banana needs. It would mean towns such as Darwin and Catherine will no longer need to truck in bananas from interstate. But perhaps what's most impressive about the farm's expansion plan is that it's being done despite having Panama disease tropical race 4, a serious banana fungus disease in the soil. To learn more, Matt Brand went along to the farm and caught up with manager Mark Smith. How you going Matt? I'm Mark from Darwin Fruit Farms. We're at the packing shed at the moment. You can see the bunches coming in on the gantry. They've just been picked from out in the paddock, been through a washer. They'll spin around and they'll take the hands off them, put them in a bath. We'll cluster them and, and grade them and pack them in, in for market, yeah. Now this farm is already the Territory's biggest banana farm, but you are working to produce even more bananas. Can you tell us about that? Oh, look, well, our goal for, for this farm is to produce 100% local bananas for the, for the year. Uh, we're working our way onto that. We've uh, increased plantings from late last year right through to try and, uh, try and be self-sufficient. For the top end? Only for the top end, yeah. Our bananas go from Catherine to Gove and all the, all the major chain stores up here. And hence why in recent times when we've had a few days of supermarket shelves looking very bare because roads have been cut or the rails being cut, um, people might have noticed that they could go into a supermarket and at the very least 
there were bananas, your bananas. Yeah, look, they're a very popular item, but yeah, we're only 40, 50 k's down the track, so our bananas are probably the freshest in Australia when you get them off the supermarket shelves. They've got um, basically picked, packed and put in the cool room, then they're ripe and delivered to store. So they don't have to travel all over the country. So when are you expecting to, to reach that target of meeting 100% of the top end's banana needs? Look, that's a difficult question because obviously um, weather conditions and, and uh, we are dealing with Panama, so it varies a little bit, but we'll be striving this year to try and do 100% local. Whether we do or not, it'll be very close. And as you mentioned, you're doing all of this while also battling Panama disease, a disease that's been on this farm for a long time now. Can you remind our audience on, on how you do it? Well, Panama we've had for, I think it was about 98 or something came on this farm. It's a fungus, a soil-borne fungus, and once you get it, you don't get rid of it. So it's endemic in the top end now. So in that, it kills bananas. And what we do is we rotate the paddocks very quickly. We only get sort of two returns of the plant crop and a first return out of these bunches. Then we move on. The idea of that is so that um, we don't build the inoculum too much into that paddock, that when we go back in there, it's actually shrunk down enough that we don't get smacked straight away. So we try and leave those um, bays fallow for as long as we can. So you're sort of pushing down banana plants and growing new ones very quickly here? Yeah, all the time. We, uh, The last few months we've been planting every fortnight, weather permitting. Um, so it's about 2,500 plants a fortnight just to try and keep it up, yeah. So it's a, it's a different way of growing bananas and we're always turning fruit and far blocks back in and planting new ones. It's what we do. It's part of our regime now. While also picking bananas. Oh yes, that happens 52 weeks a year. We pick every week. You're like a dairy farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, without the cows. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's just one of those things that you know. It is. It's. It's something that once you plant a banana, it's not a seasonal thing. It's a cycle thing. So yeah, you put it in the ground, you're going to get a bunch eventually. And can you explain to us how that compares to? A banana farm in eastern Australia that doesn't have to worry about that disease? Well, traditionally you probably, you know, you can leave bananas in the ground indefinitely if you wanted to. They just get all over the place. So to keep most, most of we used to go six to eight years in the ground before we had to replant. The only reason we did replant was the fact that um, things got a bit untidy or got a bit of damage and fall out and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's gone from six years to 18 months pretty well. Mark Smith from the Darwin's Fruit Farms speaking with Matt Bran. And finally today, an award-winning wedge. That's what one Albury Cheese Company's produced to take out a gong at this year's Australian Grand Dairy Awards. The Riverina Dairy Company took out the 2024 Champion Flavoured Cheese category with its basil-infused halloumi. Riverina Dairy CEO Frank Burain says quality local ingredients is what set them apart. Yeah, halloumi is a very uh, fashionable, uh, very popular cheese. And um, it's a cheese also uh, which uh, marries well with uh, natural ingredients as basil. And uh, basil, it's uh, not so easy to get uh, every day. And uh, we, the difference with uh, the competitors, we add the basil inside the curd. So it's uh, infused. And uh, like that, it's uh, very consistent, uh, whatever the piece of cheese you eat. So it's a quick uh, cheese to, uh, to make because um, we don't acidify and we don't mature the cheese, but uh, it's quite intense process and there are plenty of different steps from the morning to uh, the late afternoon after uh, uh, the idea of it is that uh, we pack on the same day. 
but uh, it's a fresh cheese with a natural fresh ingredient. So all based on the freshness. And so where where do you get your ingredients from? Because you're based in the Riverina, so it's quite a rich agricultural area. Yes, uh, it's, uh, everything is local. Uh, so we start uh, with the milk. The milk is uh, obviously the most important ingredient. Uh, we need uh, eight liters of milk to make uh, one kilo of uh, alumi. And after we use also the natural Australian basil. I do want to ask you, Frank, as well, you have quite a unique accent. Uh, so how did you end up in the Riverina? So uh, I've been uh, trained in, in uh, France, but uh, after uh, it has been a French company in uh, Tasmania uh, who wanted uh, technology to improve uh, their cheese a few um, late 80s. And uh, because of that, I love Australia and I work everywhere in New Zealand. But I always like developing the cheese in Australia because we have a lot of freedom and uh, also our customers like very good food. So it's easy to develop the high quality products. Riverina Dairy CEO and French-trained cheesemaker Frank Bahrain speaking to Faith Tabaluyan. That's all for Countrywide this week. I've been your host, Elsie Adamo. You can find more of the program on your favourite podcasting app and you can also read more news about your food and where it comes from on the ABC website. Bye for now.